Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. As promised, Bossman and myself are in the same room. In the same room, in the same building. In the same office. In the same office that we're in three years ago. It's yeah. been three years since we've been back in Europe. Here we are in the lovely city of Barcelona, running it back. What's changed? Uh, not much, man. When your city is as old as this city is, like not a lot changes. Barcelona's Lindy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a couple more cranes here. There's some things happening. But yeah, it feels very much like uh, back in Barcelona for the summer. It's very nice. The streets are bustling. The beaches are busy. Uh, yeah, feels good to be back. Okay. So the concept of this episode is something we've been wanting to talk about for a long time. And this is a topic that has been going viral in our own lives. The anticipation of coming back to the old continent for three years now, we've been waiting to rekindle our summer tradition of spending the summer together, brainstorming, working together, going on long bike rides, hanging out with friends uh, here in this wonderful city. But at the same time, the concept has been going actually viral. And so we're going to call this one the Europe question. The question that's on so many people's minds, I found this tweet on Twitter from Pierre Richelson that went viral. I think before he went to bed, he tweets out, okay, serious question. What keeps the average American that can afford it from moving to Europe? Question. Please enlighten me. So as two Americans, we want to talk about this question today. Ian, this tweet went absolutely viral. And there's a handful of other tweets that show that this idea of like considering Europe for the first time in many years is on the top of a lot of people's minds, as is just nomadism in general. I want to set the scene just a little bit. Why the Europe question? We have a whole new graduating class on our hands here, Ian. It's been three years People went to school. A lot of people that used to be teachers, administrators, bureaucrats, waiters, bartenders, you know what they did during COVID? They decided they didn't want to go to their in-person jobs anymore, and they wanted an online job. At the same time, a lot of companies that had knowledge workers working for them, they realized that they needed to allow those people to work from home during COVID, and then those people didn't want to come back to the office, so they needed to keep allowing them to work from home. And now all of a sudden, I think these questions aren't so much, what does the digital nomad who's this edge case traveler want to do? We got this entire graduating class of the mainstream who are asking themselves the digital nomad question that we've been asking ourselves for a decade, which is, why don't we live in Europe? It's so nice. They have public transportation. Why haven't we been there yesterday? Why don't we move here this year? That is the Europe question, and that is what we are going to talk about today. All right, now before we jump into this, I think we want to try to stick to as much personal experience as possible. I just did some little napkin math, like 20% of my adult life I have lived in the old continent. You have visited here summer after summer and spent a great deal of time here yourself. 
And also, most of our time we've spent in Spain. We've traveled all around Europe. But this is just a caveat that we're not Europeans. Maybe that's important for the content. Yeah. Maybe that's not obvious to everybody listening. <laughs> and the second thing is, look, it's a generalization. This is a fun conversation. This is the kind of conversation that we love to have or having a few Kanyas down at the beach bar. Actually, I want to set the tone for how this conversation should be taken. Listen to this guitar music. That's us at the beach the other day. So join us on the beach. We're going to share some considerations. The phenomenon of this tweet, that it went viral, I think there's a lot of weight to this right now. And when I say weight, I think America has been a heavy place lately in terms of violence, in terms of politics, in terms of media. Yeah. And so it's easy for these Americans that they get on a transatlantic their luggage manages to show up, their flight wasn't too, too delayed. And then they see this amazing continent that seems to have their act together in a way that maybe we don't feel that way about our home country. And it's pretty easy to get very optimistic and enthusiastic about it very fast. But one of the interesting things about the tweet is he says that can afford it. And maybe it's worth digging in, like what does afford it actually mean? Because I think the starkest thing when you compare Europe and America is you hear Europeans talk all the time about the services that they have, the things that the government does for them that Americans don't have. But what Americans do have that Europeans don't have is disposable income. And the reality is, is we can buy a lot of the things that the government does for you automatically in Europe. And so that's the real question is, what does it take to afford to live in Europe? Well, when you say live in Europe, I think that there's a couple different versions of living in Europe. There's like living on the surface of Europe, like, which is the cream at the top, which is like, you don't engage in any of the social services or anything like that. You come here on like a visa basically. And there are different visas now, but let's just say you come here for three months, kind of what we're doing now. You rent a short-term apartment, Airbnb, something like that. You don't have like a working agreement with anyone here. Like you come to a co-working space like we're doing now. Maybe you work for an American company. Maybe you're a digital nomad. Maybe you're a business owner, whatever it is. But you're pretty much just vacationing, right, in Europe. You're not necessarily living here, meaning like uh, you don't have a landlord potentially. Uh, you don't have responsibilities to Spain or the city, anything like that. So I think that there's that version, which is the version that we're doing now. And then there's... The other version, which is like, I've transitioned my life to be in Europe. So I think it's relatively easy these days to live on the surface or as the cream. We'll call so that like maybe slow mad method. Yeah. Like you, you just thou shalt not do local business. Yeah. You know, and the thing about it is the longer that you stay in a place, those slow mad stay the cream, like floating across the surface, never really get involved that defense system starts to break down. Sometimes it can be a spouse or a partner. It can be the need for a bank account. It can be the desire to send your children to local schools. There's all, it can be healthcare. Typically that idea that I'm just going to buy myself out of local business constantly and use like North American infrastructure from our perspective, that would be North American infrastructure. 
banking and healthcare and all this kind of stuff, it doesn't tend to sustain longer than a few years. Yeah. For example, I mean, this is just a very small thing, but I'd like to be able to use the city bikes here in Barcelona and you actually have to be a resident to use the city bikes. So I have to spend more money and buy my own bike or scooter or whatever it is. Or if you want to rent a car or motorcycle on your 13th month, then you would have to sit down and transfer your license, all that kind of stuff. At a certain point, that concept that you're just going to be above it all, a lot of people approach it from a moral angle. Like you should participate more if you're going to live there, share that space. But there's also just the practical matter of you can only sustain it for so long. Yeah. And not to get too deep about the taxes, but if you want to look at long-term being a permanent residence in Europe, like look at the tax rates too, versus what you're paying in America. Yeah. And I think this is actually maybe more important for this new graduating class. We're the old school nomads who had this decision on our plate for years. Now you've got this new school American tech worker, say they're making six figures or multiple six figures. You compare the European tax schedule, you know, financial gurus will come on this podcast and say, man, 5% a year doesn't sound like much, but it adds up. Look at what that looks like over 20 years. The reality is, as an American tech worker, we had a generation of technology workers who had jobs and became wealthy. And in part due to favorable American tax situations, I've seen some beautiful Reddit threads where European tech workers not only compare their lower salaries, but their higher tax rates. So even if you're getting the same salary, that tax rate year over year might prevent you from moving into a wealth class, say becoming a multimillionaire because of your invested savings. So I do think that's a difference. How about I do this, Ian? I've got a list of some maybe less positive things or challenges and then some opportunities. So we'll start with the challenges. The first challenge, language barrier. Well, it's kind of the same as everywhere, which is uh, if you show an attempt to speak Spanish, I mean, most people aren't going to attempt to speak Catalan here because it's <laughs> just impossible. But if you show an attempt to speak Spanish, most of the time you can get by. And most people, a lot of people here, especially in the service industry, speak English. And a lot of people here speak English, especially younger people. So if you need to get something done, most of the time you can get it done in like a little bit of English and Spanish and full English too. Specifically speaking about Barcelona is an international city. There's a lot of people from the UK here. There's a lot of people from America. There's also a fair amount of people from Asia. Um, so you can get by with English here. I don't think it's a big deal, but I think out of respect and just class, you try with the Spanish. <laughs> One of this concepts of the graduating class is something I've really been noticing, Ian. When I first visited Germany in 1998, the average 35-year-old dude in the chocolate shop did not speak English. Yeah. And when we first started this podcast, I think Germany was one of these countries where it was like just acknowledged that everybody speaks English there. And that wasn't that much later. That was just one generation later. And now we're seeing this next generation of 20-somethings that are manning businesses and they're running concessions and they're the admin person when you show up to an office or whatever. And they all had English classes, you know, and we're seeing that in our recruiting business with South Americans, right? Like it was like, oh, Brazilians, they only can work for a local company and you have to have this like top Brazilian person to wrangle all your Brazilians because they're speaking Portuguese. And it just feels like that next generation is just speaking English, you know? And so- This theme of that graduating class, I definitely felt it in Paris. Paris is a place that I love. I've been going for many, many years. And I would always sit there with the, you know, I studied abroad in France way back in the day. 
brush up on all my French, you know, I'm ready to go. And it was amazing that I was like my French this time, even though I was not in a central neighborhood in Paris, was met with slang and often British accents like from Parisians. And so I just thought, uh, there you go. This is the next gen. So Europe is changing. America's changing. It's interesting to track the changes. Number two challenge. One of my best friends uh, is a long-term resident in Paris. So I sat him down and took a lot of notes uh, for this particular episode. And he said, look, if you want to live that local life, like you're talking about, you want to send your kids to school, you want to take advantage of local services. He said, you're going to face about double the life administration. <laughs> We're talking about your licenses, your insurance, any kind of legal, if you want to get married in Europe, or if you want to figure out your will situation, just double whatever it's yeah. going to take. If you're not a life admin person, be careful about Europe because there's a lot of eye rolling and difficult situations. Expats, for example, that have been living in Europe for 15 years that speak fluent the language still can't get things done and need to hire fixers. So there's a lot of life administration stuff, a lot of bureaucracy and administration here in Europe. A ton, but that's kind of the charm of it too. We joke around about it. Today, we checked into this co-working space for the first time and I had a call at 11. And I was like, I got to get there two hours early, man. <laughs> because they're going to like check my passport. They're going to engage with me on this like key thing. We're going to like walk through all this stuff. It's like, the same thing with the restaurant or anything. You don't just show up and expect it to happen right away. Like, yeah. I went to the aquarium and got a, a membership so we could go there on the weekends. And it's like, it's a process, man. It's like you go to this desk, then you go to that desk, then you go to this desk, you know. But this is also how everyone stays employed over here. <laughs> <laughs> Three more challenges. Number one, tougher customer service at the higher levels. I mean, I think there's an interesting, maybe not for the podcast debate to be had about service levels at restaurants and things like that. But I'm specifically thinking like law, banking, real estate, rental properties, I just think the service level that you experience a lot in Asia and in North America yeah. is just so high when you're doing banking, personal banking, for example, or corporate banking. Those things can tend to be a lot more Baroque in a lot of Europe. And again, we spend a lot of time in Southern Europe where it's sunshiny and good weather. Obviously, things can be different in Northern Europe. I mean, I'll give you an example. So we're like negotiating this apartment. We've lived in the same building for like four years and get an email back. It says like one of the people in your party, the apartment that you have basically uh, rented from us, paid us a deposit for two months. Like, sorry, that apartment's not going to work out. We have to put you in a different building. For us, this is devastating because we're all not going to be together, you know, in the same building, hobnobbing around to each other's floors and stuff. <laughs> and I'm like emailing back and forth. This isn't cool for them. I'm a problem because I'm American. I want it now. I paid you good money. I can't believe this. And so I was asking you, I was like, I got to get into the head of these people. Like we've stayed here for four years. Like we've given them a bunch of money. Like, I don't understand how we could have gotten bumped from the situation. And you're like, man, they just want to be left alone. <laughs> <laughs> and I think in a lot of ways, you're right. To the people running the apartment, it's like, it's their job. They want it easy. They don't want a bunch of problems. They don't care how much money that you've given them. Like in America, like all that stuff matters. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, this is our second to fifth best customer. They've requested this. We didn't get back to them within two hours. They're upset. Like you try and please these people in America and in some ways in Asia too. And I think Americans have like a certain way of going about it, whether it can be good or not. But it's, a, it's certainly a way that Europeans don't appreciate in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. I was saying in America, you know, we grew our Karen attitude, you know. Yeah, exactly. Is, that we do 
although we suffer a lot of bad behavior from each other, we're very nice in the process or very <laughs> loquacious yeah. about it. So it's called a uh, grin effing. Monday. Monday. What's faster than a top fuel dragster down the quarter mile? Your business when you use Dynamite Jobs Recruiting to supercharge your cash flow engine. Strap in, gas up, and let the profits flow. If your hiring is slow or falling off track, supercharge your strategy with a zero to 30 minute phone call with our legends of the hard sell. They'll dazzle you with high pressure, career killing sales tactics, urgency, persistence, auto dealership desperation. And then tell me you couldn't use a little more of these in your pursuit of business excellence. Operations managers in Omaha, marketing mavens in Marbella, coding wizards in Cape Town. We're taking this race global. Thanks to the support of listeners like you, it's not just the hard driving EN closing showing at the wheel anymore. We've got a whole team at your service. This Monday. Monday. Let's outrun your competition with an insanely profitable hire from Dynamite Jobs. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and click on remote recruiting. All right, so let's move on to some of the positives. I mean, I obviously I think the tone of this tweet was essentially like Europe is dope, America, North America questionable. Y'all make so much money. Why don't you just come over here to Europe? Let's talk about why somebody might want to do that. One of the things, uh, my first point here is that you need less money to live a great life, depending on how you define a great life. In Paris, for example, my friend said that if you made a family made something like in the range of call it eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year, that you could really enjoy a good life. You could get on the train on the weekends and go check out some cool tourist stuff or smaller cities. You could go to the zoo. You can enjoy beautiful neighborhoods. You can go to the theater. You can go to daycare. You know, you can have good schooling. You can eat great food, and so. It's pretty obvious to me that lifestyle expenses are much more affordable in most of Europe. Yeah, I think it could be argued in America, like what number a good life starts at. And that was part of the reason why a lot of us like fled, right? When you could, even if you're a digital nomad making 30, 40 grand a year, it was like you could live a much better life in Asia than you could in America. I mean, I'm just going to toss it out there. 90K isn't enough for a single person to live a good life in Austin, Texas, I don't think. It's very difficult right now to do that, yeah. I mean, I'm calibrating that for this audience. I'm not saying you can't go have a good time in Texas for 90 grand, but like you're gonna be priced out a lot of good stuff. You're not gonna like fly to your friend's wedding in New York or like spend a weekend in Las Vegas or in California or something, you know what I mean? Like you're priced out of all that. Like you're just getting by on that kind of money. Second thing I had, no guns. Yeah, there's been a couple instances. I think you told me of one and then I saw one yesterday where it was like heated debates in the street. Mine was on the beach. It was like a heated debate. Everybody just stops and watches because uh, you almost never see it come to blows. I don't it's think I've seen. It's high entertainment, yeah. first off. And then high entertainment. Like blows would be the worst case situation here. Again, not to get like too political, but coming from Texas, there's something very nice about Europe in terms of dropping your kids off at school and like walking around and... Yeah, it's not to say, actually, Europe is the safest place in the world. Certainly, from what we're hearing here, petty theft and crime, especially at night, is kind of on the rise here. Yeah. But the chances that you're going to lose your life over it are pretty, pretty slim. Yeah. Definitely, it's a... Man, it's an awful thing to say about your own country. It's definitely a little bit more safe feeling, that's for sure. Yeah, that's true. I mean... You hesitate to get into any kind of altercation with anybody in Texas. You don't want it to escalate, for sure. 
One of the th interesting things is I think part of the reason there's so much optimism on Twitter from North Americans coming to Europe is for those that if you just pull out the globe, most of Europe is situated like a lot higher than you would intuit based on, you know, what you think of the weather patterns. And that's due to some oceanic currents or something. But the punchline is, is that Europe's further up on the globe. The summers here are to die for, right? Like the sun sets at 10, 15 at night. It's yeah. sunny all day long. The weather's cooler so you can enjoy the sunshine. Austin, Texas, where we come from, very difficult to step outside during the summer yeah. day. <laughs> <laughs> I think also too, like in the context of this podcast and this conversation, like we're specifically speaking about summer. You've spent winters in Europe before. Yeah. And I think you can probably speak to that. But again, I think the way that you can interpret this tweet and some of the other tweets and articles that have been made about like this kind of movement is... You know, are we actually talking about like spending full time January in Barcelona? Because like January in Barcelona is very different than July in Barcelona. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely great. Yes. But it does it does get gray, it does get colder. I mean, we're we are at the the golden hour yeah, here and, all day, every and day. And this is where the Northern European crowd comes in and says like, yo, we do not have a lot of sunshine right. in Northern Europe. Like, <laughs> there's a reason why Paris is so banging during the summer. It's like 21 Celsius, 72 Fahrenheit. Like We've literally been waiting seven months to put these yeah. tables out <laughs> in front of the restaurant yeah. so we can have a, yeah, totally. a drink. So the sunshine thing, I think, is an interesting argument that most of the United States, for example, gets a ton more sunshine than its counterparts in Europe, of course, Portugal, Spain, Italy being exceptions to that, part of the reason we're here. Another thing, it's really easy to explore cultures here in Europe. I think that's one of the positives. First time I did the high-speed rail, 200 miles an hour, that's like 300 kilometers an hour from Paris to Barcelona. And it's just so much less stress and more class than what you get on a flight. And the difference between Paris and Barcelona feels a lot more than six hours, I'll tell you that. For a North Americans who haven't been to Europe, it's almost as if you took the United States or half of it or whatever from a geographical perspective and just squished it, right? Like, Yeah, it's very uh, compact yeah. compared to America. And, and there's like equal kind of diversity, but it's just sort of squished all together. So they have like desert landscapes and snow-capped mountains and flat, or just all different kinds of landscapes that are often lauded in, say, North American public parks but they're all train rides and short plane flights from each other. So it's kind of cool. In terms of cost and like ease and feasibility, like it's much easier to go to Paris for the weekend from Barcelona than it is like Charleston from Austin. I think yeah. they just opened up like a direct flight. I used to go there all the time. I haven't been back in 20 years. And like I've been to Europe a bunch between them because I think when Americans actually start coming, or people like me, I should say, start coming to Europe with any kind of regularity, it's like you start to realize that, and this is not a dig at America, certainly, but it's going to sound like it. It's like America is all very similar. This is one of the things that makes it great, too. It's like there's the Target. <laughs> there's the gas station. Like they got all my favorite stuff at the gas station. It's the same, like Austin and Charleston. If you kind of close your eyes, it could be the same place. But like you said, Barcelona, Paris, different cities. Yeah. When people rave about, and Portland is completely different than this other American right. city. I'm always like, what's your favorite reference for that? Because it's not. <laughs> so one of the ways I want to sum this up 
and maybe we should have led with this, but I think that America is a great piece of real estate and really let's talk about North America as a great piece of real estate that took a tough L from corporatism in the mid 20th century when cities were literally demoed and rebuilt for automobiles. Europe, most of Europe didn't suffer such a terrible fate to the hands of the auto industry. And I don't know the full story, but that's the punchline. European cities are built for humans. American cities are built for cars. And so I do see urbanists, people who are passionate about city living, they really gravitate often towards Asia, towards Europe. And America, it's rural and suburban. You mm -hmm. know, there are people all around the world that look to America for rural and suburban cues because I think America does that really well. And so in some ways, it's a tension between those two modalities. Just comparing my experience of living in downtown Austin versus in downtown Barcelona, they're fundamentally comparably sized cities, but the way that you feel as a human being in those two cities is dramatically different. Yeah. I think from an urban versus rural versus like a City planning design, like Europe wins for sure, <laughs> especially in the city department. I mean, New York City is an amazing piece of real estate. I think it can certainly compete with a lot of European cities on that front, but that's kind of it. I mean, there's some other cities that some other people would argue are worth it in America. I'm not sure if I would. But Dan, I think for me, the, one of the main drivers of why Europe is so attractive, and this will be interesting, I think, as it plays out for the next 20 years, but it's uh, corporate interest. Corporate interest in America has become overwhelming and like the way, again, not to get too political, but the way it, it drives the political system and like the decisions that are getting made and the way that the government like may or may not work for the individual and it works for the corporation. To be fair, I think it drives a lot of interest here too. We're just more naive to it, right? And it's it doesn't be exercise its influence in ways that we immediately recognize. Correct. That was my point, which is definitely happening here, but it's not happening in the same way that we're used to it because number one, we're not entrenched in it. Like I said, we're kind of the cream on the top. And then number two, it's not always immediately obvious yeah. here. Because we can wrap this up with the final point, which is essentially like at the end of the day, so many of these conversations come down to cost and money. That's what we're talking about at the top government level. That's what we're talking about as individuals, as entrepreneurs. What can I get for my money? And we can come here. We don't even need to engage in society that much. We can rent the best apartments. We can live in the best cities. We can have the best of the best of the best across the board. And it's so much more affordable because not only are you cherry picking what you want, but if you're into urbanism, there's so much more here, right? You just yeah. instantly have a lot more at your disposal immediately. Whereas in America, you have to perhaps get yourself a ranch and get yourself, build all those things out for yourself. Whereas in Europe, the cities are so incredibly uh, rich with, with services, opportunities, and uh, goods. Now, if I'm a European uh, listening to this podcast, I'm pretty pissed off at this point. Because we're talking, like you said, about all the ways that we're going to come and cherry pick your cities, you know, and it, I think it's probably quite annoying to listen to two Americans talk about how they're going to take their American salaries and like come to Europe and like take all the best that 
a place has to offer, especially when maybe they can't necessarily afford those things. Yeah. And so when we were in Europe three years ago, in Barcelona specifically, there was all kinds of like posters and protesting about like the Airbnb. And it, it does definitely change the dynamic of a city. I think especially if you grew up here, if you've lived here for a long time, now all of a sudden your neighborhood's changing. Maybe it's less of a neighborhood because everyone has the Airbnb bug and they get to make a bunch of money and all these people get to come into the city. Yeah, so it's a real thing. Yeah, I think if you're listening to this podcast and you're European, you might get a little bit ticked off that we're doing this, basically. And I think somebody wrote us an email, Chris, to, yeah, saying as much, basically. And essentially that he's seen it, this undercurrent in the Facebook groups and the social media of if you take two lawyer salaries in Spain and put them together, that's the number that you're casually paying rent on your tech salary from North America. And you are seeing this trend right now, which I do think isn't a permanent trend. North American salaries are so high right now. Yeah. And there's overlapping time zones with Europe and there's an all-time ability to go async as well. And so, yes, this is a thing right now. Like there's a reason why we want to have this episode and talk about it at this moment. The cost arbitrage is enormous. Our clients for DJ are hiring us to go hire European developers for them. And also a reason why I think this is important in the context of European cities is like, when like a bunch of digital nomads moved to Bangkok, like Bangkok didn't even sneeze. Like it, no. didn't, it doesn't matter. Like there's <laughs> millions and millions of people. But when a bunch of people like moved to Barcelona, like you can see its impact. It's not that big of a place. I guess I'm a little bit conflicted about it sometimes, Dan, because like if I envision my neighborhood, I live in a pretty rural area. There's like 25 houses around like, if I imagine the worst versions of the people in those houses, like, I'm going to be pretty upset. If, like, everybody Airbnbs their property, like, yeah. next to mine, I don't know what there is to do about this necessarily or if we should do anything about it. Yeah. But I think we should definitely be mindful. Like, I'm a guest here in Barcelona. Of course. I am the cream on the top here. My yeah, job maybe that's is not to the not... best metaphor for us to use because yeah. it's, like, self-laudatory. We don't mean it that way. <laughs> I mean, basically mean, like, we're not speaking Catalan or like having Spanish driver's license or whatever. We're right. just like eating tapas and like just enjoying walking around the city and living in wonderful apartments is probably the deepest we get here aside from hanging out with local people. But I think the thing that is really fascinating is it's a scene. It's all time different than what we talked about, like the self-importance of digital nomads. We all thought it was going to be a thing 10 years ago because it was like this bleeding edge opportunity. And back to the original tweet, who can afford it? That quote, that, that parenthetical in the tweet, who Americans, who can afford it? Here's the reality. Five years ago, nobody could afford it. And moving to Europe would be a huge step down in your long-term earning career. If you are a go-getter and you're ambitious in America, you can go from working class to wealthy. Okay. And a lot of people are going to roll their eyes at that, but the reality is, is we're in the tech industry and we see people get wealthy all the time. And it's not necessarily just through entrepreneurship. They're making these enormous salaries in America, in Austin, Texas, in New York, in San Francisco. And now these San Franciscans are taking their salaries and their careers directly to Europe. And now they're taking their friends with them too. And so if they don't take the career hit for living here a huge portion of the year, I do think that could lead to a sustainable change and a bigger opportunity because the reality is, is that we sacrifice as business owners 
so much less to do this, whereas the tech worker sacrifices so much more in a pre-COVID environment. Yeah. So I think that's going to lead to some very interesting change. And a lot of this new graduating class of remote workers are going to be finding themselves in these amazing European cities in the coming years. Again, too, it's always interesting to see the country and the city's response to it. In places uh, like Thailand, they kind of figured out that people wanted to do this and they figured out ways so they could do it. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if uh, places like Europe also do the same thing. Well, the final thing I didn't even mention is like, you know, for listeners who hadn't been listening to the show for a while, I lived in Barcelona for three years. So I have local friends. I had an apartment, a bank account, the whole thing. I even started a Spanish company. And don't recommend that, by the way. <laughs> My Spanish company was represented by like 350 documents. It was a remarkable entity. I'll say this, probably the biggest downside for me living here was the network and the mindset of the network. Because it's kind of like where Europe catches people. So it's not to say that they weren't successful or formerly or ambitious people or relevant people even. But the energy was so much different than people in Austin or in Asia. Why were we in builder mode? We're in Barcelona. <laughs> right. And so it's just a little bit of a, what the city whispers is enjoy yourself with your friends and family. What your city whispers is take the long weekend out in the countryside, pick asparagus, go climb the mountain, go to that wonderful inn where they're cooking stew over the fire. I mean, I hung around with successful people, very successful, multimillionaires. Business never came up. It just didn't get around to it. There was so many other things to enjoy and to talk about uh, that it didn't come up. Whereas in Austin, it is the first thing someone is going to talk to you about is what mastermind session they just got out of and what they're implementing right now and why they can't come to see you tonight because they're going to get so-and-so result in their business. And I just bought this property. Did you see that property it was on the market for two days? <laughs> My property's worth this. <laughs> Did you hear that this company's moving, has an HQ here now? On this front, Paul Graham, I was pulling down tweets in the theme of the Europe question. And so Paul Graham tweets recently, the nonconformism of Americans was arguably an advantage relative to European countries a few decades ago. But now that every country has become more polarized and fragmented, European countries may be better off. I don't know. We're all making generalizations and tossing out ideas here. But there's something about the mindset of Europeans that made an impression on me. European cultures tend to be older, have more history, have this kind of more self-regulation, self-knowledge. Americans tend to be wildly optimistic and neophytes, like let's neophiles or whatever it is, like let's do the next thing or yeah. let's just blow it all up and try this new thing. And Americans are always like, yeah, yeah, do it. <laughs> you know? And like Europeans are like the wise, like sort of jaded uncle who's like, no, I mean, we've been down this road a few times. Right. You know? And and there's something about that attitude that traditionally made an impact on me when I lived here, you know, and I maybe that that will change with this new class, this new graduating class who they're not only participating in their local culture, say being French. But now they have access to internet culture, which is this global, you know, culture that celebrates achievement and diversity, a diversity of thought. And so perhaps uh, Paul Graham's right here that 
the mindset here in Europe is going to change and we're going to start seeing you know, a much more vibrant business culture here. So final take, what's our take? Here's what I would say to Pierre, respond to his tweet. I would say, make it in America, spend it in Europe. That's my take. I'll stick to that until something changes. All right, Ian, one of the things I'd like to do before we get off the podcast today is give our Q2 business update. We have our wrap-up meeting. We did an episode about our quarterly reviews. We haven't yet done it. We're going to do it end of week where we sort of walk through every functional area of our business. We have a one-page document we use to do that, which we'll share in the show notes to this one so you guys can check it out. Uh, over at Dynamite Jobs, the last three months, our revenue is up year over year 104%. 159% for May and 20% for June. So pretty good progress there. I don't really know what to make about the incredible growth the first two months of the quarter and then a slowing down, except to say that last June was inexplicably our greatest month of all time. Yeah. And I don't know. One of the things I say that we did pretty well is not too much market capitulation yet. Like it still feels like our pipeline is really strong and that the drawdown that you're seeing in legacy tech isn't really hitting our clients or our niche quite yet. Yeah, I mean, we don't really have hardly any market penetration in terms of like yeah. uh, what we're up to. So I, I'm not seeing so much of the correlation between the market and us, but I think as we grow, we'll start to see that. But yeah, like you said, last year, June was a breakout month for us. Overall, for the year, we're over 100% year-over-year growth, which is basically our target. I think Q3, Q4 is going to be interesting. Summer slowdown for sure, hiring. But as we grow and expand, I think that we can grow through any of that slowdown, hopefully. Here's some things that I think went well. Good team mojo. Agree? I see a vibe on our team calls, on the emails, in our Slack groups, in the way that people take on difficult projects, that people enjoy their work at Dynamite Jobs right now, that it feels like we're a little rock band and everybody really likes the next album, man. And we're excited to hit the road with it. So it's a lot of new, exciting things coming down the pike. I think uh, one positive thing, a lot of consistent application of effort by the whole team. Something that can be really challenging with remote work is being focused and consistent. I feel like the team's done a really good job of like keeping themselves accountable, showing up every day and doing their jobs. So that's been positive. Also, we made a key new technical hire and a key recruiting hire. Thought that was a highlight of Q2. Many other highlights jump out from you. It's just been a lot of fun, man. I'm thoroughly enjoying building product again. We used to have physical products business, building product there. And now we're building software products. And I hope one of these days we get to do a podcast about how similar they are. Because I had this feeling in the beginning that it was going to be similar and it is similar yeah, I feel uh, like in a lot of ways. From the outside, this is everybody. Ian's a product guy. He's always has sketches everywhere through since I first met him to even now. And uh, I noticed that you've been getting the old black turtlenecks back out, the little circular glasses, and you're really leaning into this whole European, I'm going to make great product kind <laughs> oh, yeah, of thing. totally. <laughs> <laughs> the, the question, though, is, is anybody going to buy it? You know, and I think that that's, that's the difficult part. Like physical products, you were constrained. Like you were like, oh, man, we're about to make a huge investment here in terms yeah. of this container or whatever it is. Like you had to sell it. Now you just get to make product and like, 
nah, maybe nobody bought it. Doesn't matter. We made it. It's beautiful. It's cool. Who cares? Look how it flows. You're like, I was inspired by this rooftop I saw the other day, guys. Right. And it seems like, oh gosh, it's really dangerous. Yeah. Some areas for improvement, Ian. A sales and marketing function has been something we've been talking a lot about. We're really underinvested in that right now. A lot of times as firms get to the level that we're at, you tend to get weak in what you started out strong in. So because we have such a long history in our marketplace, so many great relationships, this podcast we can record and send out to thousands of people. It's been hard for us to duplicate that with an investment or with team. And I feel like that's an opportunity for us in Q3. Yep. Q3, we're going to focus definitely more on sales and marketing. A couple other challenges. We have very aggressive overhead. We have a high staff count right now for our overall revenue. And that's going to be a challenge if there's a meaningful drawback. So we got to keep the pedal to the metal here in Q3. Yeah. Again, I think uh, building products is super expensive and you'll read all about it, but it takes like two or three years, you know, before... A lot of times you can get your feet underneath you and you can start running. And so we've done some innovative things, I think, Dan, in terms of uh, kind of floating it with services to be able to kind of afford ourselves to build product. Yeah. But uh, yeah, at some point, the rubber has to meet the road and the turtlenecks have to come off if the product doesn't take off. Yep. Put up, what do you put on? Do you put on the white Oxford and pick up the blower? You have to. <laughs> Finally, uh, scaling up. We have a project this summer that we're going to be working on together where... We're going to revisit Vern Harnish's excellent book, Scaling Up 2.0. Retired to Spain, interestingly, Mr. Harnish. And uh, I think really intelligently picking from systems that have been proven by other companies what's going to work for us and what's going to be agile versus what might be a premature optimization. We don't want to spend our time doing bean counting work or being pointy-haired tech bosses or whatever. But I do think that now that... We continue to grow our revenues and our headcount that we have to grow up as entrepreneurs and as a company as well. And so I think intelligently deciding what those systems are going to be. Even today, we talk a lot about HR functions in our company. What is a holiday? What isn't? What is the organizational chart? Who's responsible for telling who what about these things? We don't really have clear guidelines for that in our company. Definitely something we want to take care of this summer. Final update. It's end of Q2. You got any personal stuff you want to share here, Ian? Just happy to be back in Spain with you, hanging out, and looking forward to the rest of the summer here. Cool. This summer is going to be a bunch of Q&A apps. Send us your questions. We love to hear from you guys. And we're going to have a lot of opportunity to record podcasts in person, just like this summer. We'll be back next Thursday, as always. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.